This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I'm Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart this week. Mo, how was the break, mate? We haven't, uh, we haven't spoken for a few weeks. Yeah, it was nice. Uh, Liverpool did some good things and some very bad things in that time. <laughs> but uh, I must admit, I am very glad that there has been at least one win for us to talk about in the interim. But yeah, looking forward to getting back into this. There's some uh, quite a lot to discuss this week. Yeah, I mean, we picked some. We picked a very good week to have off, to be honest. <laughs> um, a lot of people were asking for the show, actually. But, you know, we were away. Sorry about that. But it probably was a good week to for this show, I suppose, in terms of deconstructing what happened and things like that, because it was an absolute disaster, really. Um, we are going to touch on it, even though it was a while back. We are going to touch on it this week's episode um, with a view to then looking at Ajax last night and determining like, how things change, what happened and stuff. So, um, yeah, we might as well get straight into it, Mo. So, first of all, last week... <sighs> Uh, where was you watching the game and at what minute did you start crying? Uh, <laughs> I was watching it at home and within the... Well, to be honest, I'm one of those people... I've, I don't like to say they've picked the wrong team before a ball's been kicked because for yeah. starters, we don't, we don't know what Klopp's seen in training. We don't know what the game plan is in that specific element. But I looked at that team and specifically the midfields and I was just a bit like... And then... How what, how long did it take me to start crying? Roughly about the time it took Milner to do that. <laughs> so about four and a half minutes. <laughs> yeah, four, four and a half minutes. Already, already had, we'd already had a couple of warnings by that point as well, which is a crazy thing. Um, it was it was strange. It was when you're a team lacking in confidence as we were, and maybe lacking in a little bit of belief, particularly considering what's happened in previous um, outings at that ground. Those two things can weigh heavy on you. And then when you start badly, it feels like the whole waves can come crashing down. And that's pretty much how it looked for the first 45 minutes, at least, of that game. Yeah, I, I, I felt it was it was kind of the um, like, like a, a cocktail, really, of, of everything that we'd seen going wrong in the games before. And it kind of combined into one for this one-off game against an opponent that is... That can punish you, basically. I must admit, I'm glad it wasn't Chelsea or Manchester City or an English team like that. It, it, we were against the side that we can still realistically qualify from the group, really. Uh, but just to capture how how bad it was, uh, the expected goals, Liverpool posted 1.1 themselves, which we've posted worse, but we've also comfortably posted better on a number of occasions. So the attack wasn't that great at all. Mm. On the defensive side of the game, Liverpool conceded 4.4 XG. Uh, that is extremely high. And um, over the past couple of seasons, throughout Klopp's tenure, I, I don't think we've we've faced more than that. What I will say is we, we did give away two penalties. Yeah, so that's going to be quite large. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So what, one point, about 1.5 of that 4.4 is penalties, uh, but even despite even without the penalties, you're still looking there at about a, you know we've, we've give away shots there worth about two point nine yeah. expected goals, which is just 
you're not going to win many games if you're doing that. Um, and the way Liverpool give away these shots, just wide open, just complete. I think the the if I was to write a piece on it, the headline would would be a lack of compactness for me. Yes. Mo, I, I think it, you know, just wide open gaps, no unity, um, easy to play through, just the opposite of what you want, really. It was, and um, I think Andy Robertson himself mentioned that post match, and it was his was a really interesting interview because you've seen Liverpool players come out afterwards and be kind of critical of themselves, but it was very much normally they talk about like attitude or we didn't do this or we didn't do that. It's more very pointed about tactically the things that they didn't do, and that tells me that these were things that they specifically highlighted pre match, so that. Again, it sounds like a worry that they were aware of these things going in and weren't able to deal with them. Because if you think about how Napoli played, they didn't really surprise anybody. Maybe some people were surprised by the the quality, the level that they were playing at. But in terms of their tactical um, setup, it was exactly as we were expecting it to be. They have fast players on the counter-attack, but they also have midfielders who can carry the ball with a, a long distances. So you're going to have to be on your toes at all times. And we just weren't. We weren't at it for a number of reasons. And again, I feel like there was a certain lack of belief in what we were either supposed to be doing or what we were able to do that kind of led to some of the more comical bits. Because we've seen games before where we lose the ball and there's gaps. But this was kind of like that on steroids. This was almost like sometimes there was almost like three guys on one defender and you're looking around thinking, how did that happen? And again, it's a com- combination of maybe players not trusting their teammate to do the job. So overcompensating, leaving a bigger gap here and other teammates not able to do certain jobs. I think in terms of midfielders running off the back of our three, that was another theme that continued on into this game. And that is such a fundamental part of the, our defensive structure that it causes breakdowns everywhere else, I think. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think you, you have to be, even not just Jürgen Klopp, but any decent team has to be difficult to play through, has to be compact. That's not like a principle of play. That's just a rule. That's that's You, you have no choice but to be compact in football. And if you're not, you will get ruined by, by top players. Um, one thing I did want to flag was, I listened to Klopp's post-match comments, and one thing that he said that I felt was really, really important and absolutely spot on, and I thought it kind of captured why he is such a long-term coach compared to so many other coaches who last two, three years, and then there's kind of a fallout and they, and they leave. Klopp said in his, in his post-match that the, the players, the bottom line is the, the players want to play well. That isn't that, and I think people forget that. Um, a lot of the time, people blame the players for, you know, he, he doesn't really care. They look like they're, they're lacking in effort or whatever he's offered today or doesn't fancy it or something. But the bottom line is, with every single player, they want to play well. So if they don't, a lot of it can stem from, can stem from tactics, structural issues, um, your, your surroundings not presenting you with a platform to thrive, basically. And I think. Over the course of a match, if things are just persistently going wrong on a tactical side of things, mm-hmm. that then starts to impact your mental capacity to cope and to keep your head up and to keep running. And I think what one team that comes to mind, funnily enough, over the past 
12, 18 months or so is Manchester United. They've been massively criticised over the past two years for their lack of effort. That's what it's been. They've been criticised for their attitude and all that sort of stuff. But nobody has really made enough of an effort to point out that maybe those those down heads just stem from the team being so tactically off it and unbalanced and disorganised that they just feel demo- almost demoralised, demotivated type thing. And I think as the match went on, like there was a goal we conceded, it was a one-two on the in the on the edge of the box. That's done the rounds and turned the highlight reels. That's you know awful looking goal to concede. But by that point, Liverpool are getting run ragged. I think so. Mm-hmm. That that's one thing I did want to throw throw in there, Mo. Just that like the the players. The bottom line is the players want to play well. Yeah. And if they don't, and Klopp recognised this post match, it's too easy to say, well, they weren't aggressive enough, or the 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 mental attitude weren't there, like Thomas Tuchel did with Chelsea a few times in the past couple of weeks. Klopp was more inclined to say, right, they want to play well, so so why didn't they play well? Yes, and and rather than just fixating on the negative part of it, it's just trying to find the solution because that's really what yeah. a manager has to do. And like you say, a long-term manager, that's always his instinct. We have to not just fixate on what the problem is, but work out how to fix the problem. And you're right, 100% what you say about the psychology of all this, because a lot of players have been taking hits for effort. I think Trent in particular has taken a lot of hits in terms of his effort. But that whole idea of what you were saying about Manchester United and their malaise, it comes down to them not believing in the plan or not believing that enough of them believe or are capable of uh, putting that plan into action. So then mentally you're in a very different place. I feel like there were times in that game against Napoli where that kind of paralysis kind of set in with some of our players, where it was almost like they don't know how to get to the point where this game's going to go well. So it's almost like, if you believe in your system and you believe in your game plan and you believe you can win the game, you're going to bust the gut. If you don't believe in the game plan and you don't think you're going to win the game, then it's easier for those close paralysis moments to kind of set in. And I feel like, I feel like luckily we can talk about it with hindsight and say that felt like an idea in terms of that whole psychology was because as we saw last night, it was a lot different. So I can kind of analyse that as of what it was rather than saying what it hopefully still is because hopefully we'll, we'll have moved past that. Yeah, I mean, one of the players who was massively criticised for his performance was, was Joe Gomez. Um, must admit, he, he was not great. That was There's no two ways about that. He got substituted at half-time, I think. Um, and that kind of sums up his day, really. And... It's, but it's too easy for me to say Gomez didn't fancy it. He's all over the place. He's not at that level anymore. He's not very good. For me, again, you have to look at reasons why. And for me, he looked like a deer in the headlights, I thought, because of the, a lot of it, because of the lack of protection. You know, play, mid- midfield players caught high up the field. A lot of the time, Napoli were just running in on, on Liverpool's back four exposed. Sometimes it wasn't a back four, it was a back two. And these players are good. You know, these, these players are difficult to deal with 1v1. Joe Gomez isn't, doesn't have the momentum yet in his game that I'm sure he wants, considering the amount of time he's had absent. So, although he looked awful, and although there was a few almost unforced errors in there, again, you have to throw in the psychological elements and, and think to yourself, like, you know, he's visibly shaken here by yeah. 
by the lack of support around him and and you know suffering on the back of the structure there's no platforms to thrive there he's wide open to the extent that you know Virgil van Dijk who's known for being for not needing much support concedes a penalty um it wasn't his best night at all but no. when when that's happening you know that you've got defensive issues so again when it comes to Gomez he wasn't great obviously but there's there's tactical reasons behind why yeah. that was the case yeah and I, I wouldn't go so far as to call them quite mitigating circumstances but like you say you can see exactly how it happened I think it's interesting with Gomez as well because he came off the back of a really great performance against Everton but if you actually look at that game the reason why he looked so good is because a lot of the time he was had particularly when it was Milner alongside him at fullback he was having to cover two players because Milner was getting beat pretty much from the jump straight away. So he was always having to defend two players, even in his mind, if not necessarily in body, because he always had to believe that Milner wasn't going to get there because, well, evidence showed it to him. However, against Napoli, Napoli are considerably a better team than against uh, Everton are. So those threats are going to be heightened and it's going to be harder to deal with. And again, what we were saying before about once you get into that kind of game, I felt for Joe because there were a couple of times where it looked like he dealt with a ball and then it just bounced off his heel behind him straight into the path of an on-rushing player. And I imagine when you're in those kind of games, it's really easy to get in your own head and just think, wow, I'm just having one of them. Nothing's going right. And then you see other players seeing it in him, seeing the potential maybe panic. And then, like I was saying before, overcompensating happens gaps appear elsewhere and then it's just a ship that everyone's trying to bail out and it's slowly sinking but that sinking ship was righted by the introduction of Joel Matip and Thiago Alcantara and I'm pretty sure we're going to be talking about both of those two when we go on to the Ajax game The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo Yeah, we definitely are. Um, another player who, who who hasn't looked great so far this season is Fabinho. And I think Fabinho, again, looked, for me, a lot better against Ajax, specifically second half. And I think, again, similar to Gomez, you can put that down to the what he's surrounded by, you know, the, the system that he's playing a part in. Go, Gomez is a good player. Gomez wants to play well. That is obvious. Fabinho is a good player. Fabinho wants to play well. If they aren't playing well, usually, not always, but usually, there is the reasons behind it. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's no surprise that against Ajax, Fabinho was presented with much more of a compact system, also partnered by Thiago, which obviously helps. Yes. Um, and on top of that, he wins a lot more of his duels. Liverpool sustain their attacks a lot better. And it's it's because of the system that's surrounding the players. Like when Liverpool first signed Fabinho, you know people were very quick to point out that he's not particularly fast. He's not as mobile as Henderson is when Henderson plays as the six. And Liverpool have made adjustments to accommodate Fabinho mm-hmm. and to 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 make him into the player that he is today in in many ways. Um, and that that stems from how Liverpool adjusted to to mask his flaws almost to mask his mobility. Um, the strengths, whereas gradually this season we seem to have come away from that a little bit. Fabinho's managing wide open spaces, mm-hmm. and as a result, he's like a yard or two off his opponent when he's making tackles looking stupid. But again, I find it difficult to blame Fabinho for that. It's a system thing, and I know you're keen, Mo, so we'll move on now. 
against Ajax, we fixed a lot of the issues. Yeah. And, and I mean, I know that it's really easy to just look at it and say, oh, well, Thiago was back in. So <clears throat> Fabinho instantly looked a little bit more comfortable. But I think there's so much more to it than that. That is true. But since I've started doing this as a full-time job, now when I go to the games, I kind of use it as an opportunity to kind of really focus in on something. Like I give myself a project. And this game, my project was kind of looking at Salah's touches and he got a lot more in the box. But it's really hard to not spend all my time looking at Thiago and listening to Thiago because he is one of the loudest voices on the pitch. And what I noticed and what I think might be the key to so much of what we've spoken about is that Thiago is the one who's leading the press. He's the one who's not only deciding when we go, he's directing people towards other people to go. So many times that I noticed he was the most aggressive midfielder. He was the one first meeting the ball when it was coming out of the Ajax defence. He was always the one who was t- letting everyone else know where everything is. And you think about his intelligence in the game, you think about his uh, experience in the game, it makes sense that Klopp would be trust him to be the one directing traffic. But that also means that when he's not there, you notice it. And I don't think that if you look at the midfield three of Fabinho, Elliot and Milner, maybe you'd say Fabinho has the ability to lead it. Maybe you'd say Milner has the knowledge and the mouse to do it. And Elliot has the energy. But none of them have the full package. Thiago seems to be able to do it fantastically. And once you've got that part in place, so many other different things look better. We become more compact for starters. Defenders are a little bit able to live up a little bit more so they know the guys in front of them are going to be scanning the ball properly. And it makes it harder for the for the opposition to get through us. It gives Trent more protection. It just makes everybody else's job that little bit easier. And the issue is, the guy is quite fragile. So we need someone else who can do that when he's not there. But for now, when he is there, he's doing a fantastic job. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go too hard on the the sole reason Liverpool were a lot better is Thiago because I think he was, <laughs> I think there was more to it than that. Oh yeah. But as an individual on the pitch, he was at quite clearly a level above everybody else. I'm really glad that he's playing like this and that he's developed this reputation at Anfield because early on, there was a fair few doubts from a lot of people. Um, he looked slow, he looked aging a little bit um, looked like he had a few grey hairs <laughs> um, and people were criticising him similarly to how Gomez was criticised last week and Fabinho was criticised last week it's because those players, all three players are great but they have to be presented with a platform and Thiago increasingly during this time at Liverpool has been presented with that platform once Liverpool got up back to a normal level in terms of injuries, Van Dijk back on the team and stuff, Fabinho back as the six, because uh, Thiago's early spell at the club was, you know, upheaval really across the board. Exactly. So I'm really glad that for Thiago's kind of established himself to be this elite midfielder because he, he, he is absolutely that, he always has been that. Uh, he's Liverpool's best midfielder on the ball by an absolute mile. Yeah. And in my opinion, he's probably Liverpool's best midfielder without the ball as well. Uh, against it on the defensive side of the game. I know Fabinho's created that as well. And they do it differently. You know, Fabinho, uh, Thiago's a bit more inclined to drift towards the final third and 
play a bit of a part in the high press, whereas Fabinho's a bit more of like a almost like a fire extinguisher, really. Um, but yeah, his performance was, was was brilliant. Just his ability to just keep the ball for a start is is amazing. You know, when he's presented with difficult moments, like I've just retweeted on on Twitter there. The, in inside the first fifty seconds, he Liverpool Allison's got the ball at his feet. Allison plays a ball to I think Van Dijk. Liverpool are building from the back from the, for the first time. Ajax obviously a pressing team, and the ball's played into Thiago, and he's coming towards the ball in the direction of Allison, and there's a man right up his backside, and. In the past couple of weeks, no criticism on Milner specifically, but maybe Milner panicked a little bit more than Thiago did. But what Thiago did with his first touch, it's an immediate switch of play to the to the feet of Centre Alexander Arnold, who's completely unmarked, and Liverpool are out immediately. And it's just that difference in quality yes. that allows you to keep the ball, progress through the thirds, um, maintain pressure and just make good decisions. He's just on a different level, and it captures the importance of top midfielders, I suppose. It does, and it's the decision-making as well, because once you have that comfort and knowledge in your own technical ability to not only shield the ball, but to also be able to make the pass when you see it, it gives you the more time to see the pass. And that's why it always looks like he makes the right decision, because he has more time than anyone else, because he's not worrying about a lot of the things that everyone else worries about. And that calmness really does kind of permeate through everybody else. And like I said before, it does make everyone else's job easier. But an underrated thing about him, I think, is his aggressiveness and his attitude. Like, he's the one who's always pumping up the crowd. Like, he did it after we scored. In fact, he did it a couple of times before we scored. And the first goal. And then he obviously celebrations after Matip's goal as well was noticeable. But he's very much aware of kind of like, not only the tempo of the game, but the temperature of the game. When when we need to kind of be a bit more aggressive at times, when we need to say, okay, we're under pressure a bit, let's just keep the ball a little bit. His his kind of meter for that is uh, is unparalleled. And that's another really uh, underrated part of his game that, again, allows everyone to just be a little bit more calmer with their decision-making. Yeah, so just to offer a bit of insight into what he looks like from a numbers perspective. <laughs> It's he's so valuable, honestly, such a valuable player, and you can see why Liverpool kind of broke the mold to get him, sign him. I think at the age of twenty nine, I think pretty sure he's one of a very select group of players that Liverpool have bought on the club beyond the age of twenty seven. I think the other one might be Ragnar Klavan, who was bought for like four million. Um, but if you look at Thiago's numbers for the game, so again we spoke about. Passing accuracy a lot in the past couple of weeks, just basic numbers to find a teammate with the ball and maintain control. So Thiago ranked top for Liverpool players outfield as this is. So this is excluding Allison for pass completion. On top of that, he ranked top for progressive passes. He posted 12. The next best was Joel Matip on eight, Trent on seven, Luis Diaz on six. Thiago again posted 12. In terms of passes into the final third, Thiago top with 13. Again, second, there was Matip on seven. Then Trent on five. Switches of play. Thiago second on five, behind only Trent on seven. And 
little look into the defensive side of the game in terms of tackles and interceptions. He posted a total of eight, which ranked him joint top for Liverpool alongside Fabinho. Next best was Luis Diaz, Joel Matip and Trent on four. So just across the board, basic numbers in, in a lot of ways, but just across the board, he's such a numbers guy. He, he ticks every box, really. He can do it all. You know, there's a reason when Pep Guardiola went to Bayern Munich from Barcelona, that there's a reason he, he had one request when he got to Germany, and that was, I want Thiago and nobody else. Because he's that good. He's literally a one-off, such a special player. And it's a shame that he's not fit more often, but when he when he is, he's as close as you get into a, a, a match winner, really. I think that's it. The decision to bring him in was always a no-brainer. I think the only time where it's become an issue is because, like you say, it's, it was either, either or. A world where we had Thiago, but we also still had Wijnaldum knocking around the building for the times when he's not around and in the team. I think that world probably mitigates a lot of the problems we had now, but obviously there were other things that came into that particular decision. But now, like you say, he's got his feet under him in the league. I think it wasn't really a case of him getting up to speed, but just more work finding the cracks. Because there is that, I mean... In terms of the way teams play in different countries, everyone has their own characteristics, but they all have pros and cons. Otherwise, everyone will play exactly the same. So it's just about taking the time to work out where the kinks are, what parts of the English game allow him to take advantage. And I think we're seeing it now in spades. Yeah, well, another way another way in which he helped Liverpool alongside John Matip, I, I felt, because for a lot of the season so far, Liverpool have been without the pair of those players, is... I think Liverpool have encountered a few issues in the past couple of weeks when it comes to building from the back. Just basic building through the third of the pitch. We've encountered some issues, suffered from a bit of pressing, lost the ball in dangerous areas and haven't really moved through the lines as easy as we have done in the past. And I think a lot of that you you can put down to the absence of Thiago and what he offers, as well as Joel Mazzup, who is... Such a valuable player when he's in possession of the ball and he's the free man because when he is the free man, he embraces that moment and he just carries the ball as far as he possibly can until he's going to get pressurised by an opponent who's probably vacated his designated space to close massive down. So I thought Liverpool were a lot better building through the thirds and I think it's kind of epitomised by that switch of play Thiago played inside the first 50 seconds and those relentless marauding runs that Joel Massive showcased throughout the 90 minutes and he eventually topped off his performance with a goal as well. Exactly. I mean, if he's starting to add goal scoring to his game, then there's literally nothing left. He's literally completed football. But <laughs> I think the thing that I love about him, and it's exactly the same as with Thiago, he's unique within the squad. The skill set that he's able to do on top of his normal central back stuff, being able to bring the ball out. But not just bringing the ball out, the intelligence and the appreciation for the whole picture that he's able to do. In terms of what you were saying before, again with Thiago, about him not panicking in certain situations. Think about how many times we've seen centre-backs bring the ball up to a certain point with which they're comfortable, and then even though there may be more space to go into, they'll lay it off, because that's it. They're, they're too high for them. The, the nosebleeds already started to come. Joel yeah. Matthews doesn't get nosebleeds. He can go right up to the very teeth of the defence and not be scared and always find the right man at the right time. And his weight and appreciation of pass is so good 
that it becomes devastating. And now the rest of his teammates are able to trust that he's going to be able to release the ball at the right time and get themselves into dangerous positions. As we saw when um, he played the ball through to Jota, who the, I think he passed it on to, I think it was either Trent who had the shot at that point. But Liverpool are now able to use Matip's runs rather than just as, you know, a bit of a comic or aside for us in the crowd as a really <laughs> devastating weapon. Because as you say, he's creating an extra man that the defence can't cover but he's also able to deliver once he gets there. That's so key. And you look at the way that both him and Thiago will need to be managed and the way that, with, like I said, there's no one else who really does what they do. It's a, both a blessing and a curse in some ways, I think, having these great players. Yeah, it is. I think, you know, just to, just to capture Matip's willingness to run on the ball uh, using the numbers... So last last night, in terms of the total distance that each player covered, in terms of carries, so Fabinho covered ninety nine yards with carries, Allison one hundred eighteen yards, Simicas one hundred fifty five yards, um, Elliot one hundred sixty four yards, and every player is. Within 200 and 100. Van Dyke's got the most on 273 yards until we get to Joel Mazup. Joel Mazup covered 473 yards purely through carries last night. Uh, we recorded on a Wednesday. Mm. And as you say, it's just such a valuable pick, especially when you're facing a pressing team, especially when it's it, it can be tricky to, to build from the back. He just will he will just step out. He's he's not faced at all doing it and I think Gomez is a little less inclined to do it. Canate yeah. probably a little less inclined to do it. Van Dijk, I thought, did it more than usual last night. But again, yeah. it's not really his game either. Um, and in addition to what Matip offers on the ball in terms of his build-up game, he's also, I think, about 6'5". And Liverpool, I think, had 10 shots last night from set pieces alone. Um, and obviously, his his winning goal eventually is a header from a corner. I think, I think it was from a corner. So... Just in terms of what he brings back to Liverpool's game, it is a lot. He brings that set-piece threat. He brings that build-up threat, the composure on the ball, willingness to step out, almost creativity in the final third. Such a valuable player, as you say. And, you know, he's, he's getting on now, but he's 31 now. In fact, it's quite sad, actually, that both Thiago and Matip are both 31. Um, both offer really unique perks to Liverpool's game, and they're almost irreplaceable. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. They are, uh, to a certain extent. And I think with the whole Matip, Gomez, and when Canate comes back into the mix, Canate has other qualities that he can kind of bring that kind of level out what you might lose from a Matip. But again, I do think that if Matip's not there, having Thiago there does kind of, again, mitigate some of those things. Because like you say, in terms of the build-up play, they are both key. So if you've got one but not the other, you can still get through. But yeah, <clears throat> the idea of having them both for another couple of seasons definitely really suits me. And like I said, with Matip now scoring goals, that is definitely something that he has over Joe Gomez. Joe Gomez is still yet to score for Liverpool. In fact... Joe Gomez is still yet to score for anyone. Which, <laughs> I mean, in fairness, he doesn't go up for corners. 
but I mean, that's probably a reason he doesn't go up for corners. So, yeah, like you say, yeah, just adding another string to the, the, the bow of the whole team. It's like having it's like an all rounder in cricket. It's like having someone who you know is going to open the batting, but is actually really good at bowling as well. It's just an added bonus to add to the team. Yeah, well, and Thiago and Massa, as you say, they, they are naturally going to be able to contribute to more than one department. Um, some other players are a little bit less inclined to do that. But overall, I thought defensively uh, we need to talk about Liverpool because I think that was obviously the biggest issue against um, against Napoli. And at half-time in this game, it was only one all. And I, I checked Twitter and quite a few people were tweeting a almost like it was another Napoli performance and that they were blaming Harvey Elliott, which we will probably get to. Uh, they were saying Liverpool were too open and all this and all that. And we've won the game, but even if we didn't win the game, I was going to be very quick to point out the numbers attached to the performance because Liverpool posted um, 25 shots in the game. Very good, obviously, on the attacking side of the game, but on the defensive side, we only faced three shots. Now, I'm well aware that one of those went in, and it was a very, <laughs> it was a very good strike as well. To be fair to him, but that, regardless of whether that goes in, that's a good defensive performance for the most part. If you're facing just three shots against a team as fluid and attack as Ajax are, mm-hmm. and in terms of the expected goals, Liverpool posted two point four, and Ajax posted zero point three, so. What that basically suggests is on a lot of days, Ajax probably wouldn't get a goal from either of those, any of those shots, even though some of them did feel quite threatening. They weren't really as big as you, like the Daily Blimp one, for example, was a header. Headers generally aren't valued that high because they're generally difficult to, trickier to score. So I think one thing I wanted to touch on was just, okay, we didn't get a clean sheet, but, you know, make no mistake, Liverpool were a lot more compact in this game, a lot more together, a lot more difficult to play through. And we face two shots. Yeah. And again, I think we have to remember the quality of the opponent. This is a game that Liverpool would have been expected to win against Ajax. And most people say, okay, well, Ajax play in the Dutch league. So therefore, there's only so good they can be. But they, ha- I think the stat was as uh, since they last lost to Liverpool in September 2020, they'd lost none of 43 away games. So they know how to play away from home. And going in going even further back to that, to the start of the season where they got to the semi-finals in the Champions League, the only away games they've lost are those two at Anfield. So they know how to play and they've been to the Bernabeu, they've been to all of the, the bigger European places and they've been able to hold their own. So they know how to play against teams who dominate the ball, who expect to have the, the better of the play. And you could see it in how they were able to play. I mean, we probably will talk about the goal that they did score, but that goal came after they had the ball for 85 seconds. Like, that's a yeah, long yeah. time to have possession of the football against the team who are trying to press you. So the ability to be able to resist that press for that long, work the spaces and create those gaps and those uh, decisions for the defence to have to make, that is the key to why they are such a good team. And so, as you say, for us to limit them in those shots of three is a really good performance. And it's one of players playing better, 
but the system working better as well. And I think the, both of those things together is what's going to give this team confidence so that they can repeat it again going forward. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the Ajax goal there. So in addition to speaking about that, I also want to tie in this growing theme that I'm seeing in terms of conversations, controversial talk and points regarding Liverpool's right side and specifically how the team looks in a balanced perspective between Henderson and Harvey Elliott. Yes. Um, I've seen that pop up as a bit of a conversation quite a few times now. So what are your thoughts on Liverpool's right side? What are your thoughts on how we consider the goal? Maybe who's to blame? And is the ending in this, basically? Um, I'm going to say there's a little bit in this, but again, to say that it is everything is to kind of under, misunderstand the way the whole team is so connected. I think there are times when we forget that Harvey Elliott still spent the majority of his career as a forward. And so there are certain elements of the playing in midfield game, which he's still getting used to. And then you add it to the fact that he's not just playing in midfield, he's playing in a Liverpool midfield. And if we could think back to when Liverpool's been at its best, the profile of midfielder we had the genuine Aldums, the Fabinho's, the the Henderson when he was at his ter- um, best in terms of uh, getting around the pitch, covering for right backs, doing all the dirty work. All of that stuff is still in the remit of Liverpool's midfielders, but it doesn't come as natural to Harvey. So he's still learning. With that said, I did do a kind of a deep dive on their goal because I remember being in the stands just thinking, how did that happen? It came from nowhere. And um, I don't go on Twitter during the game because it's never a good idea. But <laughs> the morning after is always a good one. And I've seen um, a thread from Stephen Drennan who kind of picked out a few pictures in terms of freeze frames where there are five attackers beyond all three midfielders. And you never want to get into that situation. And it happened twice in those 85 seconds they had the ball. So you look at that and you think, all of the overloads that happen later on come from that point. But in terms of the goal itself, the mad thing is, I said before Thiago's the leading of the press, that's kind of where the goal comes from. Because Thiago ends up fronting the goalkeeper. He's then directing Diaz over to the right back. Diaz doesn't get there quick enough. Simicas has to come out and help. He's also not quick enough. They pass it through the three of them. And then all three of them are out of the game. Luckily at that point, Virgil was able to hold up Tadic, but then they recycle the ball to the other side. Fabinho hasn't got the legs to get there quick enough in terms of as quick as they're funneling the ball over, and then there's already an overload. Then you get to Trent. Now, in this instance, if Trent knew that there was already 4v4, then he would probably drop back. But it's clear he doesn't know because he's there trying to block the passing lane. He doesn't block the passing lane, and once he doesn't, the man, Berghouse, I believe it is, who gets in behind him, who's run off the back of Harvey, finds himself in space, and then suddenly you've got Virgil's got two men on him because Matip's had to come over to Berghouse to try and block the cross. So you can look at it and say, oh, well, clearly this is where the problem started, where Trent didn't do that and do that. But essentially, all of those other elements across the whole 85 seconds they had the ball all leading up to that point because Ajax are a very good team. 
and you only have to get it a little bit wrong against a good team to be exposed. Yeah, this this is a a bit of a sensitive topic. This one, I feel, um, I'm not going to deconstruct the goal too too much because you've just done a great job doing that. Um, <laughs> I spent a lot of time this morning rewatching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tell. <laughs> um, but I think. In terms of the, the whole Elliot thing, right? Um it's hard to put into words what I think on this one actually. So Liverpool's right side is obviously very, very offensive. Mm-hmm. Um Trent is far more offensive than the typical right back. Salah is far more offensive than the typical right side forward, probably. And Harvey Elliott is a forward by nature. So Liverpool have a naturally very right, uh, very attacking right side. Um, over the past couple of seasons, I think Trent and Salah have been able to do what they do, and the, the system has been able to retain control and balance because Henderson has been willing and disciplined enough to cover basically, um, not necessarily win duels and stuff and tackles and things like that, but just that nature to hold the fort almost um it's just allowed the system to work in, in harmony basically and i don't i don't think elliot is 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 doing that particularly badly in any way i just think it's he's more he is more naturally inclined mm-hmm. to focus on the attacking side of the game uh, i don't think he's a a luxury player that we have to carry by any means i don't think he is I don't think he lacks industry or hard work or anything like that. I don't think he's any less committed to the cause than Fabinho or anything like that. But I just think he's a bit more offensive than what Liverpool have had. And maybe that is a slight issue in comparison to what we have at right back and what we have on the right side of the front line and what those players are like. Um, Like, for example, like just... I don't want to touch on this too much because it's it's just a one-off game. But if you, if, if you look at Liverpool's defensive numbers for the game against Ajax, just to provide a bit of context. Um, so in terms of what I said before, tackles and interceptions during the game, Fabinho and Thiago joint top for the match on eight each. Um, Javi Elliott bottom for the game on zero. Um the only player who started to post zero, I think. Yeah. Um only played sixty five minutes. Yep. So and he and he didn't have the I suppose the advantage of playing in a midfield two towards the back end of the game when he came off, which is what the switch that Liverpool made towards four two three one. So there's context behind that. It's not too much of a big deal. But the way Thiago will will, will naturally do everything. I think Harvey Elliott is a little bit less inclined to do that and Maybe that's a tiny issue, just considering the other elements of the right side. It's, do you see what no, I mean? Yeah, 100%. It's almost like there's a risk reward in having Harvey there because obviously the damage he can do going forward mitigated against, like you say, the more defensive minded elements we've seen in Henderson in that position. But that risk and reward multiplies when you add it to the risk reward we've already got with having Trent and Salah there. So, previously, the reason why we went with Henderson being the more safe option is because of Trent and Salah. So if we're going to try and evolve into something else, we need to try and mitigate that by at least making Harvey more 
aware of those things. And I think it really is something that's going to develop. Like, to be honest, I was surprised to see him have zero tackles and interceptions because I specifically remember him going against tackles. It just meant he didn't win any. <laughs> so I think, and I know we're like, I'm kind of joking here, but that in itself is an improvement because he's highlighting the points where he does have to get involved. Whereas we saw sometimes in some of the games, he was being bypassed a bit easier as in he wasn't even getting to the point of being a problem for the attacker. They were just, before he'd even get there, they were passing it around him. Now he's actually causing them to actually deal with him, which means that he's more aware of where he is in the whole of the team shape. He's more aware of what his responsibilities are. And the thing with Harvey is, is that He's, you're never going to fault him for effort. You're never going to fault him for intelligence either. So when he's being told stuff, it's going in. It's just going to have to keep at it because he's a young player and these things don't come naturally to him. So he's going to have to take some time. The problem is, is that when we've not had the structure and safety around him, again, when it goes wrong, those things become magnified. I feel like we've done a good job of protecting him as a person from too much of the blame for everything else. But internally, for sure, guarantee they'll be working with him regularly, going back over games saying, okay, these are the things you did well. These are the things we need a bit more from you. And having the rest of the team around him is undoubtedly going to help. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo. Yeah, I mean, what I do want to say and what I do want to kind of clarify is I don't, I don't necessarily think he's doing anything wrong per se. I don't think it's um, it's it's him not following instructions or or lacking in a certain department necessarily. I think I'm talking more about the nature of him as a player and what he is inclined yes. to do on the pitch. Um, like I, I do think he. He has more than enough time on his side to adapt as a player. Like it's worth it's a bit worth remembering that when Genie Wine Alden first came to England, he was regarded as a number ten. He just scored bagfuls of goals in the Dutch Eredivisie. Did the same at Newcastle, and gradually during his time at Liverpool, he was kind of transformed into this um, really safe safety net protection kind of midfielder who occasionally, if Klopp needed him to. He could mould and just instantly adapt into this box-to-box player who would arrive late and score the odd goal. Uh, but generally, Wijnaldum really changed his game in a tactical sense. And I think if you look at Harvey Elliott, I think he is pretty well-rounded. You know, he's not that dissimilar to Wijnaldum in many ways in terms of, you know, low centre of gravity, good in tight spaces, probably more forward-thinking on the ball, to be honest. Um, maybe not as good in the air, but... Overall, considering he's 19, he's English, he supports Liverpool and things like that. He's <laughs> really technical, really progressive. His progressive numbers are really good. He's definitely worth working with. It's oh, just yeah. a case of at the minute, you know, what, what does it mean for Liverpool's right side that you have three really attacking players mm-hmm. on the same flank? Um There'll be occasions where none none of them is covering for the covering for the other one, and um, I'm not. Does Elliot? Would you say Elliot has the same recovery pace as Henderson? I'm not. I'm not. Oof. I'm not an expert on that, but I mean, it doesn't feel like he does. I don't know. That's a race I'd quite like to see, to be honest with you. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm when not I say, sure when, when, I, when I say Henderson, I don't necessarily mean the Henderson now. By the way, 
because uh, I'm well aware that Henderson, with time, hasn't really offered as much as he used to on the defensive covering side of things. I'm talking more Liverpool system at its peak. You know, over the past couple of seasons, that is what Henderson has generally yeah. done well. Um, and I don't know if Elias is naturally inclined to do that. Uh, just for I'm just looking back into his numbers as well. By the way, and <clears throat> for some reason, his numbers against his defensive numbers against Napoli have completely disappeared. But everybody else who played the game has defensive numbers, so I'm not sure what he posted against Napoli. But in the Merseyside derby, for example, again for passes and interceptions, uh, sorry tackles and interceptions, he posted zero again. Um, and again, he was the only starter who posted zero. He played 79 minutes. In a derby. Uh, I, yeah, in a derby. Um, again, I don't want to put too much of an emphasis on that because defensive numbers, you have to be careful. Tackles and interceptions, you have to be careful. We're really lacking context there, but it's I'm just finding a way, I suppose, to capture what I'm, what I'm on about. It's, it's a delicate one. Mm. No, it is. And these are all conversations that Klopp will be having. And... Whether or not some of that is down to the difference in people saying the positioning and the play of Salah, for example, will be interesting to, to ask them. I'm not sure we'd ever get a chance to get the real answer from the players, but you do wonder whether that comes into it in terms of how to mitigate, like you say, the difference between what Harvey does there and what Henson does there. But again, I think it's one of those fundamental ideological questions that the club, the club have had to answer over the last few years as they've evolved as a team. I think it was a big part of trying to get someone like Thiago into the team over someone like Juan Aldum, as I said before, in terms of changing the profile, but not losing the good things of the guy you've replaced, exactly. but adding the great things of the guy you're bringing in. And that, again, it's all about the balance. It's all about finding a way so other teams cannot try to target you. Yeah. Or if they do, as is the case with Trent, make sure that your rewards are bigger and more impactful than any risks. Yeah, well, in my opinion, Liverpool achieved exactly that by by upgrading, uh, in my opinion, from Wijnaldum to Thiago. Aside from availability, <laughs> which is a massive perk that nobody can even compete with Wijnaldum with, I think generally as a player, by, by letting Wijnaldum leave and getting Thiago in, for me, Liverpool kept most of what Wijnaldum is good at and built on it by getting Thiago, yep. basically, for me. And I think it, it, on on Liverpool's right side of midfield, you are getting definitely different perks with with Elliot. You're getting probably more of, more of an offensive threat. Um, but whether you get everything that you've lost with, with Henderson not being there, I'm not really sure. And what I will say as well is... I'm not, I don't necessarily think that the answer to this is when Henderson is fifth, play Henderson there. That's not necessarily what I'm getting at. As I said, this is more about what Henderson has offered over the past five seasons in that yeah. role. It's not so much now. And I'm just thinking, you know, Trent's going to be here for many, many years moving forward. Salah has just committed his future to the club. So those two are going to be in place for a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, so that right sided role for Liverpool. If we're going to keep the four three three, I'm not sure in every game Elliot will suit unless he steadily begins to adapt and evolve and gain experience and, and mm. things like that, like Wayne Alden did. But it's, it's an interesting sort of point, I suppose. 
It is. And the other player we have to bring into this conversation, someone who did a good job of doing the genie job last season, who hasn't been here so far this season, Nabi Keita. He was yeah. a big Like, whatever you think about him as a player right here, right now, last season, he was doing a lot of the Wijnaldum bits. And yeah. whether he, where he was doing it on which side, I mean, to be honest, he kind of did both at different times. So in terms of having someone to bring into the rotation, if we're playing 4-3-3 going forward over the course of the season, we'll remain to see when and if he gets a red shirt on, but he's got to come into consideration as well. Yeah, and one, th- one thing Keita has always been, been great at is, is shining in the numbers. And uh, he's always, one of the reasons he initially emerged as such a prospect and so interesting to Liverpool's data team in particular is because he was such an outlier, not only with the ball, but without the ball as well. He could he was deemed as like a do-it-all midfielder. And I think I do think he kind of is that. Maybe not to the level Liverpool wanted. Um but he, he is a really well rounded profile. Um so yeah. It's gonna be interesting to see how Klopp manages it throughout the season. The fact that he kept Elliot in the team for this game, I think, is a bit of an insight into what he thinks. Uh obviously football is a game of opinions and um, as I said, I don't think Elliot's doing particularly wrong. It's just whether that's the right profile fit for what Liverpool need from that role in their system. But, Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries, man. It's been fun. Like I say, I've been, we talked through a lot of these things and you never know who's listening. Maybe they are listening to this over the Axis Training Centre. And, <laughs> and the next 18 days, they go through some of what we've said and we'll see a brand new Liverpool team. Yeah, I mean, this can be the team talk, mate. They can put us on the team talk and give Clap a day off. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us. It's good to be back. And Liverpool don't play again now until the 1st of October, I think I heard. So yeah. maybe for the first time in a while, and maybe you can conduct your first one, Mo, is uh, we, we occasionally do a Q&A during um, the international break and stuff. So maybe you can take part in your very first one. Yeah, sounds like fun. I'm, I'm sure I'll have nothing better to do at that time anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll do look out for that anyway. I'll probably send out the Q&A form in the newsletter that is that people have hopefully signed up for. So do look out for that one. And yeah, thanks for joining us and we will see you next week. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.